great stuff. Okay, just before we do our reading, an advert for tonight. Um, this guy, this is Peter Popoff. He's a German-born American evangelist who claims to have inside information about people's lives. God sends him messages. He sends you letters through the mail that have this written on the envelope. Inside, I reveal what will be. You'll know everything before it happens. This instantly changes your life. And he's well known for his healing crusades where he uh, uh, calls people out of the audience and says, there's a woman down there who's got such and such an ailment and she's had it for 50 years and her name is Betty. Betty, will you come up here now? And people come up thinking, how does he know all of this? Well, in 1986, we found out. He'd already become famous. He'd made an awful lot of money. And uh, James Randi, an atheist uh, conjurer, um, hired some uh, technicians to scan the airwaves around one of his, his, his meetings. And they found that the way he was doing it and getting all of this knowledge was by his wife uh, talking to people before the meeting, finding out what their complaints were, and then relaying the information through uh, a radio wave, uh, through a, a walkie-talkie system to a little earpiece in his ear. Now, Popoff was massively, massively wealthy by this point, and suddenly over the next year, he was facing bankruptcy, <laughs> because everybody knew exactly how he was doing it. But you know, it's amazing what people will believe. Within a few years, he was back. In 2005, he bought a new house for himself in California, one of the most desirable parts of the Los Angeles suburbs, costing $4.7 million. The next year, 2005, he made $23 million in donations. And since then, we haven't been able to work out how much money he's got because he turned his whole organization into a church, which meant everything was tax deductible and nobody could have a look at his accounts. We just know he's doing very well indeed. Now, people look at this and they say, how can you be a Christian when you're led by the nose by people like that? Isn't the church one of the worst adverts for Christianity you could possibly have? And so that's the question we've got to tackle tonight. In the evening, we're looking at some questions that people ask Christians about their faith. And one of them has got to be, is the church Christianity's worst advert? We've seen over the last few years the abuse scandals that have been endemic in all kinds of different congregations around the world. Uh, things that have just been covered up, shameful things that have been going on. We know that there are hypocritical and corrupt church leaders. People look back at the church's record through history and say, what about burning witches? What about the Crusades? What about this? What about that? And we need to look at that. If you are a Christian, can you defend what the church is all about? Well, that's tonight. One thing that won't be happening quite tonight, I'm afraid, is I did set myself the goal last time of putting notes for all of those sessions we've been doing in the evening to be ready for tonight. They're ready. They're almost there, but not quite. I didn't want to rush around. I thought, that I've got to do this right. So that will be next week, I'm afraid. But anyhow, uh, I'll tell you more about that when the time comes. Let's read from the Bible first, shall we? Uh, we'll read from <coughs> Luke chapter 22. Could be any of the Gospels, actually, because they all carry this story in one shape or form. But let's just read it in Luke's version. Luke chapter 22 and uh, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare, the, prepare for it? He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, then say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Well, there's enough uh, that's enough of a reading to get it going. We're talking about the life of Jesus in these sessions this year, and we've reached the final week of Jesus' life. You might remember that last time we had a look at how that week went, and we said that on the first Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He was then teaching and preaching in the temple throughout the week, and various other things were going on. He cleansed the temple, chased out all the money lenders and money changers and people who were selling animals and things like that. And so it went on. We're not too sure what happened on the Wednesday, but the whole week went through until the morning that we've been reading about right here on the Thursday when Jesus sent, his off, sent off his disciples to preach prepare for their Passover meal that evening. And uh, that evening, they celebrated it in the upper room. Then there's Jesus' death on the Friday. He's arrested that night, tried very quickly, hustled through to uh, a death on the cross. And on Saturday, the disciples are in hiding. The authorities have the tomb sealed. So what we're looking at this morning is the Thursday and talking about what happened towards the end of that week. There's a lot we haven't covered in that week, and it's, it's such a frustrating series, this one, because there is so much more of the life of Jesus to, to, to fill in. But we're only really dealing with the highlights. And uh, uh, last time we talked about the first part of the week, the king and the city, how Jesus came in over the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, and we talked about how that uh, uh, happened. Then the king and the temple, and goes into the, the temple and... Uh, uh, turns the tables and throws out the money changers and, and then the king and the people. The way in which people uh, started to um, uh, a, praise him and, uh, uh, and accept him and, uh, and then turned, him, turned on him by the end of the week. So he was a king of humility to start with. That was what the comet riding into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey tells us. He didn't milk the occasion for all it was worth. He didn't try to make a lot out of it. He simply accepted as his right the welcome that he got. But he was a, a strange kind of a king, not a conquering hero, a king on a donkey. He was a king of holiness. 
And when he went into the temple and made a fuss, it was a random demonstration to get a name for himself. It was because his father's name was being tarnished. And he wanted that place to be the way it should be, a special place, a place, a house of prayer for all nations. And uh, he was a king of holiness. And the other thing about this, this new king, this different king that was coming into his own city was he was a king of hope. And through the week, he met with all kinds of different groups of people. He healed people. He gave them a, a future that they'd never had before. And all of that tells us a bit about him. But the time came for him to say goodbye. And so this morning, we talk about the goodbye meal, the final meal he's going to have. And uh, uh, there are three things I want us to notice this week. First of all, the farewell. Jesus' last party. <laughs> Last time he's going to be with his disciples. And as we've already read, he, he wanted it to happen. I've looked forward so much to having this evening with you. So we'll look at that. But even while that was going on, he was saying, but you know, here at the table with me is the person who's going to betray me. So we need to look at Jesus' betrayal as well, because that happened while this last supper was still going on. Judas went out and said, okay, I'm ready to do it. I'll lead you to him this very evening. Third thing is the command. Because Jesus said some things in the Last Supper, but there's one thing in particular. He said, I've got a new commandment for you. You've not had this from me before. You've had three years of teaching from me. You've followed me around. I've told you all sorts of things. But now there's one thing that's super important. And I'm going to give you this as a new commandment. So let's look at those three things. First of all, the farewell. Jesus' last party. What do we know about it? First of all, we know that he planned it and he was looking forward to it. We know from some of the other Gospels, not Luke, who cuts it a bit short, but from some of the other Gospels, we know that when the time came for this Passover meal to happen, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Damn, Jesus, it's, uh, it's Passover time, you might have noticed, and uh, uh, what do you think, what should we do? And then Jesus gives this very detailed instruction, doesn't he? Go into the city, just two of you. And look for a man who's carrying a water pot on his shoulders. Go into the city and the man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? And it sounds a bit cloak and dagger, doesn't it? And it was. Because remember, Jesus knew that through that last week, he had been stoking up all kinds of resentment against him. The Jewish authorities realized he had to go. It was him or it was them. And he realized much better than his disciples did how much of uh, a climax things were coming to. And so he couldn't walk into the city on his own. He couldn't be too obvious in public because he just didn't know what they were going to do to him. And so this whole business of setting up the, the meeting, the, the sign of the water pot, all of that kind of thing was a way of making sure that a room was ready without drawing much attention to what Jesus was doing. He had it all planned. He'd made the arrangements. And so he was looking forward to it very, very carefully. He must have been thinking over the last few weeks, how do I say goodbye to my disciples? I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. God has made that clear to me. But how is it going to happen? When do I say goodbye to them? When will I be able to give them the last instructions that they so desperately need to make sure that after I've died, the minds may be blown by what's happened, but it will all start to come together. And they'll start to realize, yep, Jesus said this, and Jesus said that. How will I make sure that they have all of the things they need to keep on going? And I think he must have planned what he was going to say and what he was going to do over that evening very, very carefully indeed. He deliberately surprised his disciples in various ways on that evening. 
started out by washing their feet. When you came in from the street outside to have dinner in somebody's house, the lowest and humblest and worst paid servant you had was the one who'd be given the job of washing people's feet. Why? Because the roads were dreadful. There were animals all over the place, uh, doing poos all, all, all the time. There, was, uh, there were no litter bins, so you'd have rotting fruit and fish heads and all sorts of things. Your feet would smell really, really interesting when you came into somebody's house. So those feet had to be cleaned. And it was not a pleasant job. I mean, people's feet are never that wonderful anyway. Uh, but when you, they have all that stuff um, uh, potentially encrusted on them, it's not a brilliant job to have to do. And Jesus staggered his disciples by getting up, taking water and a towel, and starting to wash his disciples' feet. And he carried on through the evening doing one or two things that surprised him. One of the things he said was, listen, the 12 of you are sitting around the table here, and I love you all dearly. And we've been together for a long time. But one of you is going to betray me. And they all started saying, it's not me, Lord, is it? It's not me. And uh, Peter said, I'm never going to do that. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And Jesus said, before this night's out, you'll have denied me three times. And Peter, no, no, that can't be me. No, no, I would never do that. And so Jesus kept on surprising people. And that was important because all of this had to come back to their minds after on. They had to realize, yes, Jesus knew. He was in charge of the situation from start to finish. This is not some kind of haphazard, random, tragic accident that's happened to him. It's something that he realized and prepared for and prepared us for as well. Third thing is, Jesus told them things they didn't understand, but they would need. They didn't understand everything he was saying. I'm going away, but I'm coming back, and then your hearts will rejoice. Lord, we don't know where you're going. We, can't, we don't know what the way is. And of course, Jesus says some things that are very, very special to Christians now. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. And we've had centuries to think about that phrase and work out what Jesus meant by it. And it's a very, very important verse to Christians nowadays. But can you imagine the first time you heard it? We don't know the way to where you're going, Jesus. Oh, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except uh, right, sure. They wouldn't have got what he was talking about at all, would they? And so, in the same way, um, uh, there were lots of other things that Jesus said to them that he, they didn't understand. Most of it's in the Gospel of John version, and you can read it there. But they would need this stuff when Jesus wasn't there. When they had to keep his movement going and work out to tell the rest of the world about their, their master on their own, they would need everything that he was giving them that night. And so he, he said at one stage of the evening, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen... You will believe. You'll know why this has happened. So Jesus uh, uh, did all of those things. But there's one more as well. He didn't warn them of how that evening would end. He did talk about the fact he was going to be arrested. He talked about his suffering. He talked about going away and coming back. He did say he'd be taken by the hands of wicked men and be nailed to a cross. But they didn't know when that was going to happen. I think you can see that quite clearly by the, the way they were. Uh, at the end of the evening, they all went out uh, to, to the Mount of Olives. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed. And then Jesus was arrested. And you find the disciples in absolute panic because this is not what they had expected at all. It was just a nice evening. Jesus was saying some strange things. But they'd sung their hymn. They'd gone out to the Mount of Olives. What was the hymn, by the way? That's one thing that we probably know. 
Because at the end of a Passover meal, people usually sign the Egyptian Hallel, as it's called. That's a of Psalms, Psalm 113 through to 118, uh, which all kind of fit together. And they praise God for his goodness, and they talk about going into the cords of death, entangling you, and all sorts of suffering. But the Lord brings you out through it. And for Jesus, it must have been a, a hard thing to sing when he knew what was going to happen to him. But the disciples were just singing it, and then they went out for the, 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 their time in the garden, and they didn't expect anything to happen. Why? Well, we know that because they fell asleep. <laughs> it had been a tough and difficult day, and they just could not stay awake. And Jesus was praying in the garden. They were a little bit away from him, and they just fell asleep. Now, if you knew <laughs> that a bunch of soldiers were just about to arrive and, and uh, um, arrest your leader, there's no way you would be in that situation. But Jesus went and prayed, and when he came back, he again found them sleeping. It happened twice, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. So they weren't prepared for everything. They didn't know everything, but he told them enough. Now, that actually helps me the more I think about it, because that's the way I experience life. Things come into all of our lives that we're not expecting. And sometimes they seem to come out of a clear blue sky. We think, why didn't God give me some warning? And then when you look back, you think, yes, he did prepare me for this. <laughs> he didn't seem to be leading you at the time, but he was. And that was the way it was for Jesus and his disciples. He couldn't tell them everything before it happened. And I guess if, G if God had told you when you became a Christian exactly what your life was going to hold and what was going to happen to you, you'd like some of it and you wouldn't like other bits. <laughs> You wouldn't be ready for it. You wouldn't want to know. And so God reveals things to you. And need to know basis as you go through life. All the way my Savior leads me. Uh, cheers each winding path I tread. And uh, you, you find that in the end, when you look back, you knew all you needed to know if you were listening to Jesus' voice. When my spirit clothed immortal wings wings flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. It doesn't always seem like he is, but he's leading you, and you will always know what you need to know to prepare you for the next challenge he has for you. But while this was happening, G Judas had gone off to talk to the chief priest and say, okay, I'll take you to Jesus. So let's look at the betrayal for a minute. What do we know? about Judas Iscariot? Well, there are one or two things we can be sure of. First of all, he was clearly somebody who was respected and admired for his skills. He had abilities that some of the rest of the disciples did not have. They trusted him a long way because they knew that he was in charge of the money bag. He was good with money. He could take care of, of, of the, the financial situation. He could buy the food. He could give gifts to the poor on behalf of the disciples. And uh, he did all of that, clearly. When he went out in the middle of the Last Supper, nobody thought, oh, he's the betrayer. He's off to see the chief priest. Stop him, somebody. No, they didn't, didn't suggest it to themselves because Judas was somebody who was a trusted member of the group who had some kind of authority. He didn't come from the same place as the rest of them, as we'll see. But he was somebody who the rest of them looked up to. He followed Jesus for a long time. He'd been with Jesus for almost three years at this time. He had history with Jesus and with the disciples. He'd been part of the same group. Those nights when they'd had to sleep rough, when they hadn't known where they were going to be, they had nowhere to lay their head, he'd been there with them. 
Those times when they've been in, in situations of panic and terror, in boats that they thought were going to sink in the middle of the lake, he was there. He was part of the group. He'd followed Jesus for a long time. But he did come from a different place from the others. And maybe that made a little bit of distance. I don't know. If you look at uh, where uh, Judas came from, well, there's Galilee up at the top there with the Lake of Galilee, uh, Capernaum, Nazareth, all of those places. And 11 of the 12 came from up there. There's Jerusalem where they were at this point. Judas actually came from Keriot. That seems to be what Ishkariot means, man from Keriot. And Keriot is way down there. <laughs> so one of the things I would dearly love to know, and nobody has any evidence anywhere, is how on earth <laughs> Judas came to be uh, part of the disciples. It's probable he didn't live in Keriot very long. Uh, we know he was the son of a man called Simon Iscariot. So maybe it was Simon, his dad, who'd lived in, 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 in uh, Keriot, and he'd come to the north to work or something like that. Well, he'd have stuck out like a sore throat there as well because the accent was completely different. It was a, a very, very different kind of atmosphere. And uh, Judas, wh whatever the backstory, would have felt a bit like a, a fish out of water with the rest of the disciples. And so he probably kept himself a bit more to himself. And things started happening with him because he'd begun to help himself for the group's funds. <laughs> and we read in one of the other Gospels that this is one of the things that Judas did. He was a thief. He helped himself from the bag. And that's a clear sign that there's a distance growing between you and the rest of the group that trust you. You don't feel really like one of them. He was probably aware that Jesus knew about him. He said he must have been aware, mustn't he, when in the middle of the feast he's thinking, what do I do now? And Jesus, look, Jesus looks at him and says, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And he must have known at that moment that Jesus realized what was going on. And so he had to make a decision. Do I come back to Jesus? Do I give up my, my ambition of betraying him? Or what do I do? Do I go ahead with it anyway? And it says that Satan entered into him. Uh, he'd gone so far down the wrong track, there was no turning back. And so he went out, and John says, and it was night. Out he went into the darkness, never to come back. So it was un only at the last minute that he decided he had to go ahead with his betrayal project. He talked to the priests before just to see what they would do if he did. But he hadn't decided to do it for sure until Jesus looked at him and said, Look, whichever way you're going, what you're going to do, do it now. So what does Judas tell us about? I think he tells us something about the way in which it's possible for doubts to grow and uh, people to, 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 to drift away from the commitment they've got. You see, problems start when we aren't honest about our thoughts and feelings. I don't know what Jesus, uh, Judas thought about Jesus. We're not really told anything. Uh, I think he was probably in two minds. When he'd uh, seen Jesus arrested, he was stricken with remorse and he said, I'm guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And he clearly believed at that point that Jesus was innocent. There's no reason why Jesus should be tried and crucified because Jesus was completely uh, free of all blame. He maybe hadn't felt like that at the point when he went to the high priest. I don't think it was just, I want some money. There was something else behind it. But we don't know quite what his thinking was. What we can see is he wasn't being honest about his thoughts and feelings in the weeks leading up to this whole thing. If he had doubts about Jesus, 
If you had doubts about what Jesus was saying, if you had doubts about where the whole thing was going, he stuffed them down and nobody did until his act of betrayal. Just what was going on in Judas' mind. And we can be like that. We can fail to deal with the doubts and the fears and the worries that we've got. We can just stuff them down and say, oh, well, no, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't think like that. The trouble is, the more your secret life continues, the more it starts to dominate you. It takes over more and more. I've often had people who've come to me and said, listen, I've got a serious problem, but I can't tell anybody back in my church about it. I don't think there is an answer, but I'm, I'm telling you, you're kind of like my last hope. And it's actually, their problems had a very easy answer. And you whew, that's great. You have no idea what a relief that is. And what's happened is that something that is actually quite small, that could have been dealt with quite quickly and easily, has been allowed to grow and fester inside them until it's taken over the whole of their inside and they can't think about anything else. When that starts to happen, and we start wandering away from our commitment, Jesus still loves us and wants us back. What have we done? But he's not going to let us live in illusions. And that's why Jesus looks at Judas and says, look, do it quickly. Just get on with it. Make up your mind. Don't live in this nowhere land forever. And when Judas comes and kisses Jesus, as if to pretend to the rest of the disciples, no, it's all right, I'm still Jesus' friend. Jesus just looks at him and says, look, Judas, what are you doing? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? <laughs> and Jesus keeps on dragging back, back to reality when we give him a chance to do that. And in the end, maybe we can't work out where we are or what's going on. There's that passage in Second Peter, isn't it? It talks about those things that you need to keep on adding into your faith. And it says if you don't do that, then you forget that you were purged from your old sins. You look back on your experience of Jesus and say, was it all a mirage? Was it something I dreamt? Was it for real or, or, or what? And that we can't work out where we are. Am I a Christian? Am I not? And in the end, eventually, like Judas, you may pass the point of no return. And God doesn't lose his patience, but you lose the ability to turn back to him. One book I find really helpful to recommend to people who've got problems with doubt and, and, and loyalty is this one by Greg Boyd, an American church leader who's written some very good books. This one's called Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty. And Boyd says, you know, sometimes we think we've got to be absolutely sure and positive about everything that, 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 that uh, our, our faith believes because otherwise we're, we're letting Jesus down. He's saying, no, no, sometimes it's all right to live with doubt because doubt helps to sharpen our, our appreciation of where we are. And he tells his own story about how he was converted at the age of 17 and felt that he had to relieve what Church um, said in every detail until one night he was challenged about it in the middle of a car park and he just flipped. And he started uh, uh, telling his story to a friend of his. He, he just let rip and started talking about how unreal his Christian experience was and how, how, how far away from God he felt. And he says in the book, and it was this honesty that finally put me in a position where God could finally break through my false pictures of him and reveal his true nature. It was as if, in response to my vile diatribe, because he really did say some, some pretty uh, interesting things, 
Odd said, finally. Thank you, Greg. That was real. And now you've given me the real you with all that's ugly in you. Finally, in a place where you can receive the real me with all that's beautiful about me. And my beauty can now begin to make something beautiful out of all that's ugly in you. This is what never happened to Judas. Authenticity, he says, is the foundation of biblical faith. Because a genuine relationship can only be as real as the parties involved are real. And until our relationship with God is real, it can never be truly transforming. It'll only remain a pseudo-relationship that produces a religious facade. Our inner ugliness can never be transformed by such a relationship. It can only be hidden. And so there are lots of people who are pretending certainty that they don't feel. And Judas was like that. Yes, I'm a disciple. Yes, I'm right at the heart of things. Yes, I belong with Jesus. But inside, he was drifting further and further away from the reality that he wanted to have. And the third thing, the command. Jesus' new instruction. It all started, I guess, when Jesus uh, um, washed their feet. And he said at the end of this, you, you, you want to know why I've done this? I have given you an example. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And he's saying, listen, this is the new commandment. You have to love one another in a new way that just doesn't happen. And I, I'm building a family here. And you're all members of it. And you've got to look after one another. Love one another as I have loved you. You might say, well, you know, for centuries the Bible talked about loving, loving other people, even those who are close to you. What's new about the new commandment? I think there are four things. First of all, a new standard. It's not just love one another in a casual way. It's love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And Jesus was just about to give up everything for his disciples. He was about to go to the cross willingly full knowledge of what it would mean and this is the standard of love a love that gives itself and asks for nothing back that Jesus is calling us to a new motive as well if you love one another as I have loved you he says by this all men will know you're my disciples so we love not just because we're commanded but we love because we want to the world to see that we belong to Jesus we want them to catch a glimpse of Jesus through us. We want them to see in the way we behave towards them how Jesus feels about them too. A new power. Jesus breathes on his disciples at one point of the evening and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be down to you. There's going to be a new love in you that isn't made by you, isn't manufactured, but it's there. And this love, this this, this. Uh, ability to lay your life down for others will come empowered by the Holy Spirit and forth a new relationship. You uh, have a new relationship to one another because you're members of one another. Your family, your brothers and sisters. It's not just being nice to other people because you see a lot of them. They count in a way that they never did before. There's a lot we could say about that, but we, we're way at time. And, uh, uh, finally, there's a new reminder. And that's what we've done this morning with the bread and the wine, isn't it? When we take the bread and the wine, we're reminded of how much Jesus loves us, how much he'd sacrifice for us, 
And doing that in the way that we've done this morning, doing it again and again, brings us back to the foot of the cross and makes us see exactly how we ought to live. So there's a lot more you can get out of the Last Supper, and uh, my brain's too wheezy to get any more out of it, so we'll leave it there for the moment. But let's just pray together, shall we, as we think about these things. Heavenly Father, this is not the way this talk was meant to go, but I just pray that through it, you will have brought something to our mind that will help each of us. Help us as we look at the way that Jesus approached his death to gain confidence in how he leads us through our lives. To see how important it is to be honest and authentic and real in our faith. And how much that new commandment really matters that we love one another. We ask it for your name's sake.